Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And you know, Julie, in uh, in science fiction, uh, we, we keep coming back to this idea of like humans going out into the into the void and encountering another another intelligent species. Yes. And then figuring out what's going to go down. And it's just you know it's just throughout uh, the the genre, but uh, it's a trope. It's it's definitely a trope. It's all it's it's tropey even. Um, but uh, but the, the really fascinating thing to me is to is to look backwards in time and uh, and think about humans and uh, and, and their interactions with other uh, human like uh, beings, right? Such as most famously the Neanderthal. Neanderthal. Yeah, the Neanderthal, which is uh, typically spelled—I mean, it's spelled like it's Neanderthal—and I've, uh, I've I've been saying it wrong for ages. But uh, but of course, it, as you pointed out, it comes from the German, so it's Neanderthal. Yes. So uh, which is fun to say it that way. It's, too. it's yeah, it, it rolls off the tongue a lot easier if you just go ahead and, and use the, the the fake German uh, accent that we all have uh, yeah. have gotten off of the television. And just say Neanderthal, but we can't do the entire <laughs> podcast in that voice. Oh my God, you sound <laughs> eerily like Arnold Schwarzenegger right now. Ah, uh, see, I think I was listening to a mix recently that had a bunch of Arnold like fitness samples, in oh, it, so that was probably yeah. what did it. Yeah. But anyway, Neanderthal. Uh, hopefully, that pronunciation won't annoy you too much uh, in this podcast. Likewise, we are going to steer largely clear of another problem that you encounter when you start reading about. Neanderthal, in Neanderthals, or any uh, any any topics concerning the the ascension of man and mm-hmm. human evolution, and that is that you almost all always get bogged down in discussion of dig sites and all these Latin names for the different fossils, and it's in it's all very important to right. a larger understanding. But we're going to try and steer clear of a lot of that. Um, yeah, because it's like the Book of Genesis. Yeah, when yeah, it comes to that, it is. It begins like, and then Homo epicatus uh, emerged <laughs> from Homo elliptus, and we don't know where Homo capacatus fits in. You know, it just gets, it gets a little dry. Um, yeah, uh, you know, even even for me, and I've I've written some articles about this before, and it just you know, it kind of stuns your brain after a while. But the, the, so for our purposes, we're yes, gonna focus yeah, yeah, we're on... gonna we're gonna sort of blow through some of that. Yeah, um, yeah. But but there are lots of great resources out there. Um, that, that'll, that'll hit you with the Latin names if you like. But to, uh, to really put us in more of a time and place, um, let, let's talk about what the Neanderthals were. Yeah. All right. Um, they first. Hominids. Uh, they were, they're hominids. They're, they would have looked very much like people, um, like modern humans even. Like right. if you get in your mind this sort of idea of a, like a, a troll-like, um, uh, Ron Perlman-esque hulking thing, uh, um, <laughs> Or Tom Waits, you can put that in as well. Okay, um, you know it's like, that's not necessarily a, a good model to have, and it's a really hard one to kick. Like when I think Neanderthal, it's it's really hard to kick that idea of this hulking brute that's stomping through the underbrush. Right, rabbit. it's that cartoon caveman with a club thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and it, it's hard to get past that that. But uh, it would, these guys would have looked more or less like modern humans, only shorter, uh, heavier built, mm-hmm. um, stronger, particularly in the arms and hands. Mm-hmm. So they were they were kind of thick, and uh, and you know muscly dudes. Yeah, actually, I read somewhere too that their rib cages were really large and they didn't have much of a waist. Yeah, which was sort of like the, it gives you this idea of these barrel chested, really compact, muscular beings. Yeah, and uh, you know, kind of like I guess kind of like a stumpy wrestler physique to a certain extent. Um, they uh, the, the skull evidence we have showed that they they didn't have much of a chin. 
and their forehead foreheads were kind of sloped backwards. Yeah. Uh, their brain case was lower but uh, longer, and it housed a slightly larger brain than uh, what we're carrying around today. Right, which was really great for them, helped them survive for a very long time, but also, as we'll get into later, may have contributed a bit to their downfall as well. Yeah. So these guys uh, first showed up in Europe uh, as early as 600,000 um, or 350,000 years ago. We're a little, you know, it, again, anytime you deal with the fossil record. Yeah. You're dealing with bits and pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, and many of the pieces will just never have. So it's it's always a little touch and go, and it's it's and and if you don't understand that, it can be a little frustrating. Where you're like, how can we not know? You're like, how can we just dig up some more bones? Well, not all bones survive. Not all bones become fossils. Yeah, it's yeah. a game of chance, right? Like he, yeah. even the Neanderthal man who was discovered, it was sort of by chance because the guy who who saw it was about to pitch it, and then he thought, well, maybe that's a bear skull, and he was collecting um, animal skulls and ended up keeping it, and then they found out later that, oh, no, this is not a bear skull. So, again, I mean, w- our knowledge would have been so incomplete yeah. if he hadn't had that chance encounter. Yeah. So these guys uh, pretty much ruled uh, Eurasia for 200,000 years, uh, roaming around, uh, doing their thing, and... Uh, even at the height of uh, their occupation of, uh, say, Western Europe, uh, scientists think that they probably never really exceeded, uh, say, 15,000 total. So, okay. so you know, we're not dealing with modern population levels of human. Like today, humans are really off the chart, you know. I mean, we're a, an exceedingly successful species. Or we're, I mean, you could argue we're an invasive species pretty much right. everywhere. Uh, but, but this was a time when populations could not really reach the unsustainable uh, levels that we've uh, managed to achieve today. Right. And from fossil records, what we do know is that the, the time that, um, Neanderthals went extinct, humans were really, Homo sapiens were really starting to make great gains. So, right. of course, that's where we, that idea developed where, uh, we just vanquished yeah. the Neanderthals and ate them and mated with them and left them in the dirt. And that's not really true. Yeah. It's kind of like to, uh, this will probably be the only time I use a, a Will Smith quote, but, um, wow. <laughs> but, uh, there's this idea that the Neanderthals were old and busted and the humans were the new hotness and that we just, Eradicated right. the old and busted Neanderthals. So it's just they were just a, a you know th- this was the old model. The new model so much better. So of course the old model is going to die out. Right, right. But th- the more you really look at it, the more it, it becomes a situation where you have two really good models. I mean mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like the idea that um, I think it was a, actually Ricky Gervais who pointed out that like the the, the garden slug. May look disgusting, we may hate it, but the garden slug is perfect. Like nature has filled that yeah. that niche with something that really works well. So, like nature does, by and large, doesn't create. Uh, you know, evolution does not lead to ineffective designs. It's like this is the pinnacle. This is a a great design. So, the, the more you look at it, you have a situation where the Neanderthal is a is a killer design, mm-hmm. but circumstances uh, ended up uh, having this other design, this human design, be the one. It's going to take uh, take the lead, it's right? Going to become right. the dominant uh, force, and a lot of that had to do with climate, right? Like, right. like the time that they were uh, flourishing, Neanderthals, they they had adapted to their environment really well. Yeah, um, but I, I'm jumping ahead here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and two other key things to mention is that the, another there's a really old, outdated idea that's still probably kicking around in a lot of people's uh, heads, and that is that we evolved from Neanderthal, and that's no, that's completely not true. Um, rather, we share a common 
relative, um, a, um, a, a, a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. So if you were to follow the chart back, you'd say, Hey, here's this particular species. Right. Um, and, and it, at, at this point it diverged and there's, uh, and it's, its ancestors became Neanderthals and became humans. Right. So In, there's Homo erectus, right? And then right. there's the branch of Homo Heidelberg genus. Is that, am I saying that right? Uh-huh. Which I just picture a, a, a caveman in, uh, in Lederhosen. I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I Heidelberg. Uh, and then, of course, that evolved, that, that species evolved into, uh, Neanderthals. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like the same thing that we, like, we share a common ancestor with a champ- chimpanzee. Right. But we did not evolve from a chimpanzee. So if you had any of that kicking around your head, uh, get rid of that. Yeah. Like 99.9% of our genetic material is shared with Neanderthals. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and another uh, interesting uh, fact to keep in mind is that uh, is that again we we coexisted with Neanderthals for uh, for for for, for a, a, a brief period of time, right? Uh, as far as uh, as evolutionary history goes, but uh, but but we did coexist, right? They became extinct about thirty thousand years ago. Yeah, and they may have uh, survived in in some very remote areas mm-hmm. for perhaps up to 24,000 years ago and that's uh, specifically um, Gibraltar uh, yeah. you know in the strait of Gibraltar um uh, there's a site there called Gorman's Cave that uh, people have studied a lot so this is an isolated uh area that that you know it's just an island they end up there and they end up holding out there for a while but eventually yeah. um they're out and we're in but what i find really interesting is that uh Neanderthals got a bad rap because they weren't these great bedazzlers. Oh yeah, because right? they're like, well, where are their cave drawings? Yeah, where are where their, are their beads yeah. and their, where's their jewelry? So mm-hmm. th- at that time, that was the litmus test of whether or not you were um, sophisticated enough to be thought of as as cool as Homo sapiens, right? Right. And so th- that really did contribute to this idea of uh, them as knuckle draggers, actually, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because they are so much more nuanced than um, than that. And in fact, um, it reminds me of Kazu Ishiguro's "Never Let Me Go," the novel uh, about the the oh, clone yeah, children. Yes, uh, this is the my, my wife read this for book club, and it's basically the same plot as the old uh, sci-fi film "Parts the Clonosar," which they uh, did for MST three K. And also, uh, there was some um, what was that? Uh, the island. Yeah. Basically, you know, the idea of like, oh, let's let's cl- have clones of ourselves so we can have spare parts. Yeah, right. So we yeah. can just pick up this organ from this person. But uh, one of the, the central um, topics in the book is that the children must produce artwork to prove their own humanity. Hmm. And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking, well, that's a, the same case with Neanderthals is that we thought, well, we don't see any cave paintings. Therefore, they must have been brutes. They must have been without sympathy or, you know, these... These higher ideas of our emotions and our humanity, but we'll find this out later. It's that's not the case at all. Yeah. Well, also, it's it's important to to note that some of the early cave drawings that you encounter, like pictures of, are pictures of animals, uh, you know, pictures of prey. Yeah. And uh, and they think that a lot of that is probably used to 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 teach. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So it's not like they were like, they were like, oh, I have free time. I must uh, create some art. Let me draw an antelope. Isn't it beautiful? No, it was probably more like, like I'm tr- really trying to drive home to you how to hunt an right, antelope, right. kid. Let me draw one on the wall. Yeah, this isn't cubism here. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I think we can sort of get a little, uh, 
you know, a, a little lofty about our ideas concerning uh, um, early primitive artwork. Yeah, and you've um, touched on this too as well. Is it the superiority myth? This mm-hmm. idea that Homo sapiens are really the only cool kids in town because they mastered fire, um, yeah. we can speak, agriculture, we can use tools, agriculture, so on and so forth. Yeah, and it, it really kind of flows into sort of a manifest destiny. That, you know, this idea that yeah. we're, we're special, we've got to be special. Uh, you know, we're we're here. We're the, we must be the superior design. There could not possibly be a better one. Right, and that's the cool thing about looking at this um, and, and thinking about it in the context. We are the the ki- cool kids here right now, but uh, you know, two hundred thousand years from now, they'll be looking back at us, saying, "What in the world were they doing?" Yeah, we um, Neanderthals first met our. Uh, human ancestors in the Middle East about 130,000 years ago, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, perhaps after about a half million years mm-hmm. of separation right. uh, when they split off from that common ancestor. Then they uh, contacted each other again in Eurasia roughly 45,000 years ago. And and this is where we, we end up in, you know, and there are a lot of questions about what these contacts consisted of. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, you know, those cave drawings that we've mentioned, you, you don't see any cave drawings of Neanderthals. So it's, it's not like they were just running into each other at the supermarket all the time. Again, right. we're dealing with small populations of people, people that moved around uh, for the most part. So Yeah, they were nomadic, yeah. Yeah, nomadic people. So it's not, again, it's not like they would run into each other all the time. And even human populations are, are were likely to be running into, you run into a group that, Speaks differently that that are that are very alien from you, right? That are maybe just as alien from you as these uh, slightly heavy set guys who uh, who look pretty intimidating and look like they could really take you down with a tackle if need be. Um, but we now know that that we uh, humans tangoed with Neanderthals, and, and by tango yes. I mean they had sex with each other. Yeah, at, at least some. It, it like it it apparently happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the genetic evidence is there. Did it happen all the time? Pro- no, no, it didn't. I mean, it's it's not the kind of thing that, no, that no. is happening all the time. No, and in fact, it, if that were the case, then um, we, we would have a lot more evidence in our own DNA, right? Right, right now we've got traces of 2 to 4% of Neanderthals in the modern human genome mm-hmm. in populations outside of Africa, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's some evidence there that, again, they tangoed. Um, and this we learned from the Max Planck Institute, because they sequenced the uh, Neanderthal genome. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And they also found out that um, they were pale-skinned and they had a range of colors. Including red hair. Yeah. 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 Um, and they shared the language gene with us. Yeah. Um, which is Fox P2, right? Yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, in, in fact, there have been some uh, some arguments that they may have... Uh, uh, they have, may have communicated musically. Do you remember this from yeah. uh, from our research for the uh, the music uh, healing the mind? Yeah, music can music rebuild your brain. Yeah. yeah, and it was the bone flute. Yeah, yeah, um, and that was something like I don't know, was it fifty thousand years ago or fifty thousand mm-hmm. year old instrument yeah. that is clearly it's it's intentional in its marking. Some people have said, oh, animals made the holes in the bone, but if you look at the pictures of it, like the the holes are pretty exact. Yeah. Um, so it's not too far off to think that they'd be able to to use it as a musical instrument. There are also you you also see uh, different uh, examples of uh, of cannibalistic uh, or it, well, okay, there's some examples of cannib- possible cannibalism right. among Neanderthals <laughs> and also. Uh, uh, some evidence uh, in with the bones to suggest that humans may have eaten Neanderthals mm-hmm. at different times and possibly made necklaces out of their children's teeth. Oops. Yeah, which is just going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, 
And, and, you know, to call back to another podcast, we have the whole cannibalism uh, podcast where we dealt primarily with cannibalism in, in nature. Right. So if you haven't listened to that one, if you were like my wife, you were scared off from it, thinking it was going to be about mainly about people eating other people. <laughs> it's really mostly about uh, about animals eating their own type. Praying mantises offering themselves up in, in a love yeah, ritual yeah. to get their heads bitten off. Yeah, lots of sexual cannibalism and that kind of thing in that yeah. podcast. But w- one of the things we really drove uh, tried to drive, drive home in that was that cannibalism, uh, when you strip away all of the 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 modern human uh, taboos. taboos and all, it, it really makes a lot of sense. So it's just... The, the idea that you would encounter um, it. That and, doesn't mean that we're suggesting do it. But no, no, no. In the context of when it happened, it made sense, right? Because they're hearty protein sources. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's otherwise that, that stuff's going to go to waste and you might starve to death. So, of course, you eat it. There are also some arguments out there that that, uh, that these early groups, including Neanderthals, also uh, partook of, uh, of some scavenging. So it's yeah. also in a situation where there's... Some war dead, either on your, you know, from your own tribe or mm-hmm. from this group that you just uh, had a, a little um, miscommunication with. Again, why let that? Why let the vultures have that when that's uh, those are some some vital nutrients that could sustain you as you continue to to scour the landscape for uh, for what will hopefully be your next meal. Right, and talking about uh, miscommunication or, or communication makes me again think of the speech gene. And the fact that because they had the large brains and they had that gene and because they also had a tiny bone in the throat called the hyoid, mm-hmm. um, it, it, which supports the soft tissue of the throat and it holds the root of the tongue in place, which is a requirement for speech, makes me think that, it, um, and, and many others, that they did have some sort of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do know is that their larynx is much higher in their throat than humans, which would have limited some of their speech. But it's, it's a, it's good to note that because again, that, that would have helped them to have survived to be able to communicate with one another. But in the long run, it, it may have actually um, contributed to their demise in terms yeah. of Homo sapiens. Well, and also we've seen plenty of evidence that just because, uh, I mean, even just among Homo sapiens, just because one group can talk to the other doesn't mean the other group isn't going to uh, attempt to wipe them out. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's... Uh, no, yeah, and that's – it was more in the – well, we'll talk about it later, but it was more in the context of uh, is it uh, – are you better suited to survive if you can communicate really well with each other? Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing about Neanderthals that uh, has been – that the veil has been lifted on is tool making yes. and, and some other school uh, skills and things that they've done. Um, again, it was thought that humans had the upper hand with tools, but it turns out that – Neanderthals were just as sophisticated with their tools. And in some cases, um, the shales or the, the blades were a lot more effective than the homo, sapien, homo sapiens. Um, so there you go. Mad skills. Yeah. These guys were hunters. Um, these guys made glue. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is pretty amazing. It's, yeah. Do you mind if I talk about yeah, it? Yeah, go for I'm it. I'm yeah. so amazed by this. Uh, it's, the glue is made from tightly rolled strips of birch bark and it's deposited into a hole in the ground. And then they cover that with earth and they seal out the oxygen. Mm-hmm. Then they take a smoldering stick, put that in there. And, uh, because the birch is deprived of oxygen, it sweats out pitch. And so when it cools, it can be used in tools to bond materials together. And the, the even, uh, cooler thing about it is that you can take that piece of cooled pitch and take it anywhere. Of course, they're pneumatic, right? So mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to bring it with them, and then all you have to do is reheat it uh, to use it again. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because the I don't can't remember if this was a PBS special 
I'll have to look at my research notes. But uh, the video clip that I saw of this, it was really difficult for them to do and to do right. So it took a lot of skill and it took a lot of trial and error. And even in this day and age, for you and I to try to do this, I'm sure there'd be a lot of expletives flying. You know, there'd be a steep learning curve. Yeah. So for them to be able to do this is is amazing. Yeah, I I can't can barely cook dinner for myself without um, resort, resorting to cursing. So I can't imagine yeah. making glue in my backyard. I know. I, I remember your risotto stirring technique yes. needed um, some observation by a second party. So yes, um, I cook best when I'm I'm helping and not taking the lead. You're more of a sous chef. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, there's no shame in that. Sous chef, that's an important role. Uh, but they also used pollen. Uh, a lot of uh, pollen was found in the caves. Mm-hmm. And that was used as an antiseptic and a salve. And speaking of uh, of pollen, it's, it's worth uh, pointing out that they were not uh, specifically uh, carnivorous. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like meat was a big part of their diet. They were... They were probably steak fans uh, and, and would have uh, been found frequenting uh, Outback uh, if they were around today. <laughs> but uh, but they did eat vegetable matter. They yeah. did when, they did uh, you know, scavenge for seeds uh, when uh, when that when when, it would be, when they were available. So. Yeah, and they yeah that's right. They found some plant plant matter in the molars. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, here you have this idea of them as being these you know cavemen who were just you know. Uh, and then, of course, they were taking down some large animals, but they weren't, you know, primarily carnivorous. Um, so this idea of they them, invented the blooming onion, actually. <laughs> they not, did. not many people <laughs> really know that, but um. oh, yeah, they did. Um, uh, you just threw me there. I'm like now I'm imagining them over the fire with their blooming onions. <laughs> um, I'm salivating a little bit, and that's just so wrong. Uh, but. The other thing is a lot of people thought of them as sort of like the dirty hippies, too, of hominids. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the hygiene thing has been brought up before that their teeth has shown very little decay. Yeah. So they were taking care of their their teeth in some manner. Well, and it's it's also a lot easier to take care of your teeth if you don't have a huge uh, sugar um, diet. So, um, you know, these guys, you know, aside from some nuts and berries here and there, you know, they're probably not... Uh, uh, you know, sucking down as much sugar as uh, modern uh, humans do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're probably whittling their own little toothpicks, too. Yeah. We, actually, we don't have any evidence of that, but I'd like to imagine <laughs> that. Um, so in, in in thinking about, like, how how a, um, a this human or human-like uh, population grew and expanded and eventually dwindled and uh, disappeared, you, you really have to think of it in terms of geology, climate, and resources. Mm-hmm. Um because we're talking about long stretches of time here, hundreds of thousands of years, during which uh, the Earth's climate kind of whopped around back and forth, yeah. kind of like a, a ping pong ball, where you had you had periods of cooling, you had and then you had periods of heat, right? You had some uh, some glacial uh, stuff mixed in there, and uh, and and when the weather changes, it changes the uh, the, the geology, right? And, the when, and yeah, and when and over long periods of time, of course, as geology changes, it changes the weather. So these are all things that are in flux, and they force in the same way that uh, that you see uh, like populations of birds moving around. Uh, um, you know, it's like oh, you know, people and, and looking at say uh, you know global uh, global warming and climate mm-hmm. change. You, you know, you see how populations of animals are 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 affected. And at this time, I mean, the, the humans were very much uh, 
I mean, humans are, are susceptible to this even now, but at the time, it, you know, if, if animals had to move uh, to a different uh, geographical location, then, then humans were forced into that area as well. Right. I mean, and just to put it into context, too, we, the global warming that we experience now is different from what they were experiencing in terms of extreme climate changes. Yes. So the Neanderthals... They survived the Ice Age. They did really well with that. They became very compact and muscular, right? Right. Um, but but then at some point, um, the, the climates kept changing very quick. And within you know a span of a lifetime, a lot of their landscape could have changed. Uh, in fact, we know it changed. Yeah. So the forests that they relied on may have receded, and all of a sudden they have less area to hunt in. Yeah. And uh, it. Yeah, to, this really boils down to, to two areas that really stuck out to me um, about how how this, these changes in climate affected them. Um, all right, one key thing to look at is that Neanderthals, as far as we know, never took to farming, never took up our agriculture, right. which of course is just was a was and continues to be a vital part of modern humanity. Yeah, and keep it's, in mind they're nomadic too. Right? Yeah, yeah, so. they're nomadic. Um, and again, and again uh, agriculture is the thing that you know made us settle down, right? That, that, and then ultimately led to uh, to the to the construction of villages and cities that gave us the free time to specialize in different skills mm-hmm. uh, and allowed like you know one old dude to just sit around the village all day painting stuff, um, making those cool cave paintings. Yeah, yeah, or making uh, you know making little gold frogs or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, Neanderthals never took to the agricultural way of life uh, for the greater part of their Eurasian dominance. Uh, the climate was harsher and more sporadic than it was today, so it just wasn't good a good time to get into farming. Right. Um, you know, even if even if they'd wanted to, they were smart enough to, they were skilled enough to. So it wasn't a situation where they would have been like, "What is carrot? How me plant?" You know, it, it wouldn't have been a situation like that. But the 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 time was not right for the uh, agricultural uh, leap. Right. And well they were so tethered to their own physicality too, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And and when conditions improved, when it did get become farming right. time, um th- there wasn't that much really pushing them to leave behind these hunting and gathering techniques that worked well for them. Right, cuz I was thinking about it that they they uh put scientists put that the extreme climate changes about 45,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. They became extinct about 30,000 years ago. Yeah. So for 15,000 years in in crazy Climates, they they uh, they still had toehold in it, right? Yeah. They were still existing, but eventually you're going to die off, and you know you're not going to you're going to lose that toehold, and um, those great stocky limbs that you had are going to be problematic because they require yeah. more calories to upkeep, and there's less protein sources around, right? Less right. forests. And that body uh, style that they had, that that meaty, tough, uh, you know, wrestler build. Um, the main way that this suited them. Uh, was in ambushing their prey. Yeah. They were used to dealing with, uh, with wooded or semi-wooded areas. Somewhere, you know, they can hide in cover, wait till that deer or that ibex, um, you know, or that, that blooming onion comes in close enough, you know, <laughs> wait in the, wait, wait in the, the, the cover and then leap out and, uh, and really throw down with that deer. So it was like a wrestler on the ropes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To come down. Yeah. He's like, he's on the ropes. Let's get him. And then they, you know, just, Beat the crap out of the the deer, or or, they, or more like you know they do spears and, and whatnot. Uh, but they've also uh, they've also found injuries in some of the Neanderthals that that they say resemble rodeo rider. Um, <laughs> That's right. Um, injury. So, so which you know so just imagine it's like you have a, a pretty dangerous animal, prop, prop, perhaps with big horns mm-hmm. uh, or antlers, and uh, and these guys and and again they probably wouldn't probably they probably would not go after some of the larger like megafauna. Mm-hmm. They, you know they probably would not be hunting a rhinoceros or something like that, but something like a deer and ibex. So they they hide. 
it comes into, into range. They jump out, they surround it, and they just start attacking. Now, is there a clown yeah. in this scenario? I hope so. I hope that there was like a Neanderthal a tall, early clowning. Clown, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. why they didn't paint rocks. They were, they, their art was maybe <laughs> all about painting themselves. <laughs> they were performance so. artists. Um, but yeah, that's interesting that you bring up the injury too, because I remember reading uh, that those injuries were oftentimes sustained when they were much younger. And mm-hmm. so it's, for some of them, it could really limit their range of motion. And yeah. this is where uh, the community really comes into play, oh. because those yeah, the, yeah. the elderly and the infirm were obviously taken care of by the group, which is another factor of this, of them, you know, being having, a lot having more sophisticated. Yeah, having yeah. some sort of culture. So it's not just like, oh, that one's hurt. Uh, we're going to leave him behind. Yeah, we'll eat you later. Yeah. And you can easily imagine, too, like a system where it's like, all right, the young guys, you guys haven't had your legs broken yet, so you're the ones who leap onto the Ibex's back. <laughs> and uh, uh, your father and grandpa are going to stand back with the spears. You know, it, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm just sort of imagining things, but um, but but it's easy to, to see how a system like this might work. Now, what happens, though, when climate uh, change causes your forests to shrink and, and ends up creating this, uh, this steppe tundra environment mm-hmm. where suddenly you have – more and more just vast, empty stretches of, of, you know, no cover mm-hmm. where you see, you can see the herds of reindeer or, or, um, or, you know, ibex or whatever, but they're off in the distance. It's like, how are you going to, how are you going to get that? Right. So you see, and there's a lot of competition for that too, right. right? And you see the emergence of, uh, persistence hunting, which, um, there's a, there's an excellent sequence in, uh, the BBC Discovery documentary, The Life of Mammals. Okay. Where they, uh, they show, um, cause the final episode, they, you know, they get up to, the mammal, uh, humans, and they, they, uh, they deal with, uh, sand people of the Kalahari Desert, the last, uh, tribe supposedly, uh, on earth to use this ancient technique. And this is where, uh, humans use running and tracking to pursue prey just to the point of exhaustion. See, as humans, we of course can sweat, um, and we, you know, it reduces our body heat. But if you're chasing some sort of quadruped, uh, this particular prey animal probably needs to slow down from a gallop to a mm-hmm. pant. So it's the, it's like the, um, I kind of think of it as the Terminator method of hunting, you know, where it's just like slow, it, you, you're never, you're not going to actually outrun the gazelle or whatever, right. but you're going to, you're just not going to stop. You're just going to follow it. You're, it's not going to lose your trail and you're just going to keep on and keep on until it, it literally falls down. You see the, the videos of this, it's like the animal just eventually collapses. And then the uh, the humans just walk up and finish it off. So the Neanderthals were not uh, were not built for this. Right. Like it, this this skill becomes the survival technique, and they are they're just physically generally not able to to carry it out. There are also probably a lot of human uh, populations that, uh, around this time that were equally unsuited for this new way of life, and they also went uh, the way of, uh, of any other species. Right. It's not just the Neanderthals yeah. we're talking about. Uh, right, we're talking about a, a lot of you know, it's like like any kind of like changes in an, ec- an economic uh, situation, you know, like the the economy changes. Oh, suddenly big bloated businesses can't survive, and you know maybe the little guys are going to do better. This is, I mean, this is the same thing with with the physicality. Right, right. I mean, there are other uh, Homo erectus types out there. At the same time, we're just focusing again. We're just focusing on Neanderthals, but there are other uh, species right. existing out there at this time period um, that that. Aren't making the cut either. Yeah, and and also, and again, it comes down to resources too. This, it's not a situation where humans were like, "All right, we're here now. Let's kill all the Neanderthals." You're talking about generations and generations of of the the landscape of uh, of human and humanoid populations changing. Yeah, where where the humans gradually outcompete the Neanderthals for resources. The mm-hmm. Neanderthals end up being isolated in smaller and smaller areas. Uh, 
in, in more isolated areas until they are eventually a, uh, to, to, um, to steal a phrase, uh, from, uh, from, uh, a, a book we were just reading. Um, by Clive fin- Finlayson. Yeah. Uh, they become the living dead, like a panda. Yeah. Or uh, a tiger. <laughs> Those, in my opinion, far more interesting than a panda. But, uh, you know, they, they reach the point <laughs> Not where. Not cute and cuddly, though. Yeah. Well, the, the, you don't know. Neanderthals could have been, could have been very cuddly. Actually, what I think is funny about this is early depictions of them made them look so caveman, <laughs> man-apish. Yeah. And now that we've had this understanding of them, much fuller understanding the last five, ten years, it, they look so much more human-like. Yeah, they have, like, our different wax depictions of them. Mm-hmm. They've gone from, like, you know, from, again, like, you know, s- you know slope-faced uh, beast man to, yeah. to looking like just somebody you'd encounter, you know, on the street. Yeah, now so. the depictions have, like, little bow ties on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like fashion shoots and all. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you need to tell uh, W Magazine about that. <laughs> so why us? Why did why did we persist? Uh it largely comes down to a situation of we were it was just we were in the right place at the right time really we were better suited to roll with some of the changes that were coming down the pike yeah if the changes had been a little different or occurred at a different time it could have gone the other way and we could cover more territory right so yeah. we weren't as stocky or muscular yeah we were we were better suited to persistence hunting we uh, we took to agriculture we um and we also i mean we we also eventually just got a better foothold yeah uh, on on our population, because again, you know, the, the Neanderthal population never got above like probably uh, you know fifteen thousand. Mm-hmm. So a smaller population is always going to be more susceptible to uh, extinction. Um, and once you reach a certain size, and and in our case, once you reach a certain sophistication, it, you're really not going to deal with that in, as much, unless of course you engineer your own extinction through uh, any number of w- ways that we're. <laughs> Actually, Louise uh, Leakey, the granddaughter of Mary Leakey, has an interesting TED Talk, and she talks about that. She says, hey, like, don't get too much on your high horse, homo sapiens, because we've only got 200,000 years of skin in the game. Yeah. And, you know, look at our, how our population has gone nuts and the resources that are dwindling. So don't get too excited here about the old uh, continuation of, of our species. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a um, again at, at all a lot of it comes down to geography, climate, yeah. and resources. And if you look at uh, the the state of, of human civilization, you can find some red flags really in all three of those areas. Yeah. And uh, yeah, how are we going to roll with the changes? Yeah, I know. I mean, yes, we have a dropped larynx, and it mm-hmm. allows us to communicate in a more nuanced way, and we can teach each other in a more effective way than the Neanderthals. But yeah, what about uh, what about climate change? What about uh, smog? Yeah, or uh, blooming onions, and and of course, uh, you know, there's always a chance that we may, uh, uh, you know, eradicate ourselves with the with nuclear weapons. We I don't think that's entirely off the table yet. No, um, as as much as we would like to hope so. But, but hey, there you go, Neanderthals. Yeah, planet Neanderthal. <laughs> uh, so I hope I hope you uh, you know you might look at them a little differently the next time somebody mentions them, or the next time somebody slurs them. You know, stand up for your your uh, evolutionary uh, brother sibling brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and check out, uh, if you'd like, the Max Planck Institute. Uh, they've got some really in- interesting information on the Neanderthal genome, mm-hmm. and they have a really great video called The Neanderthal in Us. Yeah, kind of like Tobias Funke's The Man Inside Me. Right? That's right. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, hey, we got some uh, listener mail here, which I think I'll fly through here uh, real quick. Our listener Eric writes in. 
And uh, he's uh, responding to our um, our podcast, uh, The Werewolf uh, Principle, uh, Engineering Humans for Outer Space, uh, which was one I really uh, enjoyed uh, doing. And he says, it was interesting to hear about modifications to the body that might be made to help people fly in space. But you made two mistakes. First, deaf people would, would be able to use the radio, something that was a little bit critical for, to space flight. And I believe here he's referring to uh, something we uh, corrected in a, 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 or, well, clarified in a right. previous uh, listener mail. And that is that there are various forms of deafness. Right. And only one really falls under the uh, under the model that was discussed in that podcast. Which is to say not all deaf people would yes. not suffer from from uh, yeah, from motion uh, weirdness Sickness, in, yeah. in space, uh, but uh, Eric goes on to uh, to add some some really uh, interesting stuff here. He says, "You also missed a rather obvious, at least to me, point. Every person who has flown in space has carried forty or fifty pounds of equipment with them that is not only completely useless in microgravity, but can even get in the way. Their legs, a human leg from hip to foot, including the foot, weighs about twenty to thirty pounds in a person in reasonable shape. As an amputee myself, I think amputees have been uh, overlooked as astronauts, though I am not." sure I'd be willing uh, to have what's left of my legs removed for a chance to fly in space. Uh, I'm an SBK amputee. Anyway, great program, uh, Eric. So uh, that was uh, that, that was uh, some really interesting insight. I yeah. really had not thought as much about that, about you know, because you see shots of astronauts uh, floating around, and indeed, it's not like they're using their toes to manipulate things. Yeah, that's true. Uh, here's a uh, brief note from listener Chris. He says, in reference to your podcast, Underground Robotic Highway, you uh, stated that the driverless Google cars drove around San Francisco driverless. While technically that is true, there was a driver in the car to take control if needed. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Um, and, and indeed, just to, to clarify, there was a driver, and these things were not just rolling around unattended. There was, right. you know, you could think of it like a driver's ed class. Where there's a human there in case something goes crazy. <laughs> Although I love the idea of, you know, these going around like Lombard Street. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like... It, Unattended. Like, uh, is it... I, I believe David Sedaris pointed out that... Um, uh, is it Michigan where uh, blind hunters can go out hunting alone? I don't know, but I'm going to say that sounds yeah. very Michigan <laughs> as a Michiganer myself. Yeah, so this is sort of like that. Um, I have another one here from uh, listener Jane. Jane says, I listened to your podcast about the Curies, uh, and this is about scientists and love, and wanted to say thanks for a great show. My husband and I met as undergraduates at a nuclear and radiochemistry summer school put on by the Department of Energy. I am now working to finish my Ph.D. in radiochemistry, and my husband is working as the reactor supervisor at our university's nuclear reactor. He has a master's degree in chemistry, and when I finish my time here, he will get his Ph.D. Considering how I met my husband, I have always loved the story of Marie and Pierre Curie. It was great to hear more uh, personal side to their amazing scientific contributions. I love y'all's show. So uh, there we go. There's uh, some nice uh, feedback from uh, some listeners. I know, and that just made me think I would love to see some MRI scans of scientists in love and oh. compare them to the general population. I think that that's that would study be interesting. works. Yeah, yeah. That, would, that would actually be a great, like, a great art exhibit. I would, I would go see that. Yeah. All right. Someone out there. There you go. So, hey, uh, if you want to come uh, see what we're up to, what we're thinking about, what we're writing about, what we're podcasting about, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.